When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 115, Owain Goes to War. Last episode, we talked about how Wales started a revolt against the English at the end of the reign of Richard II. The revolt was initiated by people, not by leaders and nobles. Otherwise, culprits would have been more obvious, and the amount of incidents which would have happened on both sides of the royal dispute would have been much more apparent and the calling out of various people would have definitely have been much larger but we don't have that what we have is stories of people doing things in the dark of people getting robbed of people getting murdered and it seems more like a crime spree than an actual revolt but that's hard to determine based on english judicial records and the writings of the nobility, who obviously are looking at it as more of a criminal offense rather than an actual uprising. Either way, this dispute which came about at this stage seemed to die down. But as we talk about this, we need to now go back to 1399 to talk of nobles, greed, graft, and how one land seizure likely gave the war its face. Lord Reynold Grey, Baron of Ruthen and Marcher Lord, was in a dispute with Owen Glyndwr over a parcel of land which Glyndwr had claimed and that his family had owned. Grey, who was a lord with a lot of power in the English court, in fact he was the second to Henry IV, had been a beneficiary after the death of Lord Urundel and took over much of his positions within the trust of the king. It would not be surprising if Glyndwr and Grey had served together during the Scottish Wars. They had both served under Urundel, and so would have at least known each other. Whether they liked each other or got along, of course we can't say, but I would hazard a guess based on the events that happened afterwards, if they ever did, it's likely it didn't last very long, or at least didn't last past a certain period, because their relationship after 1399 is not so great. At some point before 1399, Grey seized that portion of land we were talking about, which is called Crosses or Cruesa. He did this by sending men to take it from Glyndor, effectively just did a bit of squatter's rights, which led to the dispute, which he then took to Parliament, or I should say Owen took to Parliament. Under Richard II, Owen actually won legal arguments against Grey, but before that could be enforced, Henry IV took charge and his favorite lord would benefit from this. The parliament ruled in the favor of Grey and set the lord of Glyndufri on the path to rebellion. 
Tradition states that in the autumn of 1400, Henry was ill to prepare soldiers for the war in Scotland. Lord Grey withheld the summons to Owen, effectively putting him at odds with the crown and making him a rebel. While Henry did go north and carry out, or attempt to carry out a war against Scotland, the summons to the Welsh lords made on September 19th appears to have come after Owen had already broken with the king. Some scholars disagree with this interpretation of evidence based on the grounds that what they've been able to find of local writings of the time and of records that came directly afterwards, it didn't seem like Henry was coming to collect troops to go to Scotland, but rather was bringing them together to attempt to put down a growing revolt which was happening in Carnarvonshire, which was being led at that point by the Tudors. So, then it would set a lot more context to what was happening with Owen and why a refusal to fight would be seen as a direct treason to the king, one that forfeited all his lands to the crown, which you can see why this might be something that Grey would want as he expected to be rewarded for his loyalty and obviously claim even more of Owen's land. This was something that happened relatively frequently during the Middle Ages if you wanted to get rid of someone just point him out as being a traitor, being a deviant, being against you. And it makes it a lot easier because, of course, now it, at this point, it's harder to prove who's right, who's wrong. You're really only appealing to the king. So if the king favors you over your enemy, it's even easier to get what you want because the enemy can't argue back effectively. So why does the story seem to appear to show Owen as the blameless pawn in a game by English lords, rather than proactively joining the rebels, merely seeming to be pushed into it. Why have him seemingly dragged kicking and screaming into the revolt as presented? And this goes for the documented evidence and also in, in the writings later on that are looked on in sort of the heroic poem format. Owen is always seen as a reluctant hero, someone who you wouldn't necessarily see as a Welsh national savior if he has to be pushed into it. And in a way, we can look at mythology and, and storytelling for these kind of things, you know, the talk of the idea that a hero will reject the call and not necessarily take on an aspect of something or take on the hero's journey and quest because of reasons that he might have or she. And so, in a way, from a storytelling aspect, Owen's story fits well with that because if he rejects the call initially and then is forced into it, he looks even more blameless. He looks even more noble in the quest, in a way. Um thinking in more modern terms, think of a Luke Skywalker in a Star Wars story or any of the other films and novels you read and see, quite often the heroes will have a point that forces them into making a decision that initially they were skittish to make. So in a way, it's, it's playing off that mythological idea. In this case, it seems to be accurate based on what we have. It doesn't seem like he was pushing or trying to become something different. He was allied with the English. He fought wars for the English. He represented and worked with the English on a number of occasions and was a judicial figure within the English crown. So, in a way, it's easy to say and see that he wasn't trying to go this route. But if the Scotland story is, has something 
that comes after it. And it's something that's remembered by people rather than documented history, there'd still be a good, very good reason for it. In retrospect, it makes Grey look worse. It does initially set Owen as the chosen rebel, but a rather reluctant one, as I said. Someone who, after the fact, would be seen as sympathetic in English eyes, especially when judging others who sided with him. Obviously, if you're going for a pardon, it sure looks better if your lord that you followed wasn't someone who actively wanted to betray the king, but someone who was pushed into it. However, if that was the goal, another story came out at this point that may as well have been just as flawed. According to the story, shortly after declaring himself a rebel, Owen would meet with his followers, his family, and his friends, and likely those who served with him or for him. In the traditional story, Owen was betrayed by Grey and would have decided to call an assembly of these friends, relatives, and others. And it was during this assembly or discussion that they proclaimed him Prince of Wales, and in these stories, created later, had, in the perspective of the English, had been calling for the death of Henry IV and his son, the English Prince of Wales, an heir apparent also named Henry, who would later be Henry V. This would mean Owen was proclaimed Prince of Wales in September of 1400, according to this version of events, likely around the 16th to 18th. If so, this becomes a significant step along the road, one that sets him out as someone who sees himself creating a nation, not just rebelling against a monarchy as a subject. However, that seems to go against what we knew leading to this point. Owen himself only starts to use the designation of Prince of Wales in later years. It was at least two years later, and possibly as late as 1404, while trying to win foreign allies, that he starts to use this title exclusively. And it's hard to speak to the French with the title of squire or baron in the English monarchical system. When you want to talk to a king, you want to talk on an equal or at least within range level. And especially when you're trying to create an alliance with a grand enemy of England, one who is willing to throw troops and money at you to try and destroy them and to win the independence you're trying to get. So it makes some sense that he would then appeal to that title. It's a title that's well known. It's a title that's been kicking around for a hundred years within the English monarchy, but obviously has, you know, another almost thousand years of of relevance to Wales, even if the title itself only existed within the last two to three hundred years. Once again, the story of Owen as a national leader was important to the overall story of the revolt. It makes sense story-wise to have them not just as a rebel, but to establish a new head for that rebellion. But from a practical sense, Owen was out on a limb which to this point had typically been a terribly short one for pretenders to the title. And logically, his support system in 1400 was much smaller and much narrower than it would be later. The idea that he was a national hero at this stage is more myth-making than reality. It doesn't discount the fact that Owen would become a hero. Yet at this stage, and in this point of the upheaval, thoughts of kingdom were not quite there yet. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved 
and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add ons every week, like breakfasts, on the go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factor's ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. They may have wanted to simply remove Henry from power and return a friendlier person to the throne, specifically one of not of Lancastrian birth. We'll never really know what was in the hearts and minds of our rebels, but we're going to change soon enough from the idea of England being overthrown and changed to a free Wales, which would grow into a life of its own. It's around this time that Owen was failing to appeal to Parliament for redress that Bishop John Trevor of St. Aphith had warned that the Welsh were on the brink of a major rebellion. He also pointed out that crossing Owen would create a major problem due to the influence he had in his own area. This was a man of honor, someone seen as noble, someone seen as worthy of loyalty and it's something we will see is very much true. But at this point, English lords did not take this threat seriously, going as far as to call Wales up full of a bunch of barefooted idiots from a nation with little reputation. Which is a strange idea and, and concept that the English would have had at this point. Obviously, propaganda being what it is. But the Welsh had been fighting for the English crown in Wales and England and Scotland for hundreds of years at this point, if you include the marcher areas of Wales, there's men and treasure that's been used to create a massive military structure that is supported by the Welsh nobility who aren't exactly pushovers. So the fact that they took them so pointless and considered them to be little more than country bumpkins is an amazing judgment call. If this kind of talk seems familiar, it would be something akin to what was said about the people in the Americas and elsewhere in the world that would see 
invasion from Europeans on their doorsteps, the elitist ideals that somehow conquered people were lesser than yourself, and needing your invasion to bring them up to civilization was one that has predated Roman times. This is nothing new in history of humanity. Yet, that type of talk would win you few allies. Worse, it sets even more justification for rebelling against you and against your obviously unjust rule. The Welsh nobility often is referred to as the, and I'm going to massacre this, so my apologies, but I'll try my best, the Achulwer, and they were to feel the pain of a hundred years under English control and were, much like Owen, finding the disadvantages of becoming, were becoming more pronounced under this new Lancastrian monarch. The Welsh nobles had been sidelined by the advance of the English interests in Wales and were hardly a part of the administrative power players over the last 50 years especially. Entire generations of rich nobility were stuck without a way to continue to advance their holdings, even if they could in places like the English possessions in France, it was not enough to raise them much on the ladder of power. You can gain all the wealth in the world and still be stuck with next to no power in the system that the English had created. There is some argument that these powerful men were instead seeing that they were never going to be in control and never going to have influence. So, as the poorer classes rebelled, they were soon joined by this nobility, who must have seen this as better than what was happening under English rule. Their reason might be selfish rather than selfless, but these were powerful motivators to take a risk that would see you hanged if you failed. You know, the, the, the risk-reward factor is tremendous in these circumstances, and typically, as much as the peasants suffered, certainly the nobility would suffer on these situations. Look at Llewellyn the Last for that sort of example. Regardless of how it happened, who was involved, and whom asked who, Owen was in the war now. His men, including relatives, English and Welsh, by the way, were loyal to him for various reasons, and they joined him in Ruthen. Owen had decided he needed to move against Grey and to do it quickly. Whether you believe the traditional interpretation of Owen's origins for his rebellion or that he was one of a number of players who were dragged into the fight, it didn't matter anymore. Owen must have known that he did not have the men and material to sustain a fight against a legitimate English army. So his raids on Gray's possessions from September 18th to the 24th of 1400 were more about supplies, gaining quick wins, and taking booty than they were about taking land. It was suggested that Owen likely had around 300 men at this time, most of whom were on horseback, which would make sense as a raiding party working against lightly fortified towns would be much more effective with their speed and coordination and their assault would be harder to defend against, rather than going up against castles. However, that too would happen. On the 18th, Owen and his men sacked Ruthen, kind of the headquarters for uh, Gray and his area. There would at least be some men affiliated with Owen, possibly even some of his troops, who would attack towns of Denby, Rudland, and Flint. These attacks could easily have been coordinated from Owen's homestead as they were all within easy reach and easy ability to get to. 
you could say at a stretch, even those 300 men could have carried out all of those attacks. Yet attacking four communities and six castles in the process must have been done by more than a fast-moving cavalry to be devastating in that area and at this stage. This would have been an area covering 60 miles with battles fought at each point and with men and booty being hauled back to locations friendly to Glindor. That is a lot of work to do in three days and something that seems to beggar belief if we're just talking about 300 men on horse. By September 22nd, the English town of Ostwy was attacked and nearly 20 miles to the south of Ostwy, these battles continued and the most southern ones were miles away in Welshpool. Welshpool is 68 miles away from Denby. While that doesn't seem like a lot in our modern terminology, that's a massive distance for people on foot in those days. If these attacks centered from Owen, there's little doubt that there must have been a lot more than 300 cavalrymen. While he may have been at the center of the organization, I have little doubt that Owen was not involved on a personal scale across the whole front, so it leaves a couple of possibilities. One, Owen was far more ready for the revolt than most expected, and Grace stated withholding of the call to go to war was just what Glindor had been waiting for, to execute a massive countrywide attack. Second, these attacks were more spontaneous shows of Welsh revolt, possibly encouraged by Owen's successful raids earlier and the various other events that had been going on during this period. This would explain how they ranged across the border by such a distance and doesn't need major coordination or Herculean movements by Glyndor and his men. Henry, who had been marching north for Scotland, pivoted with his called troops, taking up a total of 20,000 possible soldiers and auxiliaries in nor to northern Wales. By September 19th, Henry was calling for men and supplies in the marches in an attempt to squash the rebellion as quickly as possible. Instead of meeting resistance, though, as is a fine tradition in Welsh wars with major English forces, Henry met nothing. He arrived in Bangor in October to no signs of rebellion. The forces resisting him were not coordinated to deal with this kind of threat at this point. They were hardly ready for anything other than guerrilla warfare and were in no shape to put up a physical defense of the country against a massive English army. Instead of meeting Henry, they turned into the forests and the hills that surrounded them and that would hide them. On October 18th, 1400, Henry moved back to England, empty-handed in his search for the Tudors, who he had been specifically looking for, and he declared Rhys Gethin was to be arrested and that the Tudors' lands were seized. But Owen, to this point, saw no punishment. Now, that was changed fairly quickly, but the fact that even at this late stage, Owen had avoided that is interesting and kind of shows that his was seen as the lesser threat at this point. However, by November 8th, that all changed. Owen's lands were forfeited and handed to Henry's half-brother, John Beaufort, Earl of Somerset. To try and get Wales under control, Henry issued a general pardon on November 30th to any who would accept, and with only ones not pardoned being Owen, William, and Reese Tudor. This meant that the seizure would remain, no matter what Owen did now. The die was cast, and he needed to rethink his strategy going forward. 
just how much he could do to take back of what was rightfully his and what else he could do to make sure he kept it. This meant that Owen likely met with the Tudors at this point if he hadn't done already. It was during the winter of 1400 to 1401 that much of what would come to Wales over the next decade would begin in this cold North Wales. These men, former squires of the English crown, who had very much been embedded with the English through various things, had had enough of dealing with the usurper king, and the time had come for a new day for Wales, one that would exclude at least the affiliated English that were affiliated with the crown. We don't know what they discussed or how they decided that Owen would be the representative and the figurehead, but in the coming year, it would be very clear that the Powys Lion would be roaring once more, headed by Owen, with the backing of a growing movement from every level of society, who had their fill of King Henry and his English lords. With that, I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, if you would have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at welshhistorypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at welshhistorypod. Or you can always join us on Facebook at facebook.com for slash Welsh History Podcast. There's a lot of people joining up. Certainly, I try and put news items and things there. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can always uh, find me at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. I appreciate everybody who donates there. And uh, you guys are tremendous. Thank you so much. You've helped me make this podcast possible. And without those donations that I receive, honestly, it would be a lot more difficult. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you later. Have a great day. Bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, We'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.